My little poopsies. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersox. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we are your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode will focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Twitter at Mouse Madness Pod or send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Kyle, we're still here. We're still locked down. We're still churning out episodes. We've got a new bracket today. We've got Best Minions. Best Minions. New bracket. And if we sound a little different, it's because we're rocking some new microphones. Oh, let's the mouse, go. The Mouse Madness uh, Podcast Studios has upgraded our equipment and we are profesh. Uh, so thank you to everyone that's listened because it's really inspired us to step up our production quality here. And uh, we hope that it, it makes for a, a more enjoyable listening experience. And if there are any sponsors out there that want to, um, you know, uh, help us out, we are completely open to any partnerships at this moment in time. Completely open because we are completely broke now. But here we are recording once again, and we are talking best minions. We're talking the best sidekicks for our villains. And we've invited Kara to the show. Kara is one of our friends from the summer camp, and she's going to be our guest host. Welcome, Kara. First show, first time. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I hope I can bring a lot to the table, but I think I definitely have to compete with your Disney knowledge and opinions. That's all right. We welcome casual tiebreakers, hardcore tiebreakers. We've seen them all on this podcast so far, and we're just here to have some fun, y'all. Now, every great episode of Mouse Madness has a great spoonful of sugar to go along with it. Kyle, what have you brewed up today? It's weekend, and uh, we are still sheltering in place, so there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, alcohol buying. But what we do have plenty of here in the Mouse Madness Podcast Studios West is champagne. So you know what I'm drinking today? I am drinking a mimosa that for this episode I am calling the Evil Hinchmosa. Ooh. Chris, what are you drinking? Well, you know me. I'm uh, your friendly neighborhood CVS bartender, so a <laughs> little bit of a limited stock today. But a couple weeks ago, this trend went viral on Twitter where people were talking about what fictional foods or drinks that existed in movies they most would want to try in real life. And as we were studying up for this episode, I realized one of those things I've always wanted to try was the drinks that Kronk brewed up in Emperor's New Groove. They're this like pink flavor that Love it. looks really tasty. So yes. I tried to make my yes. own. So I put watermelon, Arizona iced tea, and Sprite and Redberry vodka in a little glass, and it came Amazing. out pink. Amazing. Just like the cocktail. And I'm calling it Cusco's Poison, and it's pretty dang good. So I would highly recommend, for those of you with a limited liquor cabinet, limited stock of mixers, you can whip this up in like two minutes. It's great. Kara, what are you sipping on today? So I also have a very limited liquor cabinet. I have a heavy, heavy pour of rosé. You gonna need it. <laughs> that we decided to call Briar's Rosé. Briar Rosé. Perfect name. Perfect name. Just like a spoonful of sugar, every great bracket needs a demographic. Now the parks are closed, so our interns cannot go. Ask the people like they normally do. So we had to work some magic. Kyle, where did we get these numbers from this time? 
There is a plethora of Disney fans on Facebook, Chris, and there are a lot of them that are part of these Facebook groups that are all about Disney fandom. Some range from park-specific, ride-specific, movie-specific, to just general Disney-specific fandom. So we went ahead and had the interns pull folks that were part of the general Disney Facebook group fan base, and they went to them and asked for their top 16 best minions, and their answers were all calculated as normal, and we've resulted in 16. However, there were a few that missed the dance. Oh yeah, there were a surprisingly large number of minions to draw from. This is kind of a character classification that I never really thought super hard about, but most villains in the Disney universe do have someone working on their side. So there's tons to choose from, and obviously we've only got 16, so a few not going to make it. The couple of noticeable absences I've got are Hayabusa, who is the falcon that belongs to Shen Yu in Mulan. Super forgettable character because he doesn't really do a whole lot. He's very much a pet to Shan Yu. Most of these minions kind of have their own characters and they serve their own purposes in the plot and complicating the plot, especially like getting in the way of the villain's master plan. But Hayabusa doesn't really do a whole lot. It's kind of just like a, a tracker who helps the Huns in their movement across China. Valuable for that reason, but not a very memorable character. Also, I've got Thumper from A Bug's Life, who is like the evil animal grasshopper that is Hopper's muscle. Super scary, and it's really funny because all of these insects have human-like characteristics, and you have this insect who is very animalistic in nature. So I find it interesting. Also, a lot of these heroes and villains battle in a climax and there are minions and sidekicks that match up together in the final showdown and in a bug's life it's dot versus thumper (laughs) who is like the little baby ant princess versus this mean fierce (laughs) grasshopper and it's really funny she stands up to him really well and it's it's a great moment for dot's character and it's a really funny moment in a bug's life kyle what are some miss the dance characters you've got yeah so the first one for me is fungus from monsters inc fungus is randall's sidekick um he's the super anxious little red guy that ends up getting swapped in for boo in the scream extractor towards the end of the movie and uh and comes out super pale with the huge lips it's hilarious scene um, but he he's kind of a forgettable character when you think about Monsters, Inc. Because you have Waternoose and you have Randall and you have just all of these, uh, these side characters that it's hard to really pin down. So I'm not surprised that these Disney fans didn't go straight to that. Um, and my second one are Bruce's boys. We got to talk about Bruce's boys from Finding Nemo. It's the two sharks that were in the uh, ascent, the the fish food anonymous group or, or the recovery group or whatever. Um, and after, uh, I mean, they're, they're such a small part of the movie that you also, it's another one that you kind of just forget. Um, and it happens so early on. So you don't, you might not think of them first thing when you're thinking henchmen. But um, there, there's some pretty great characters there. Uh, they're they're funny. They flip on a on a on a dime. Uh, they turn from being friends to complete 
enemies of Dory and Marlin. So uh, they didn't quite make the dance, but it was there are a couple that are worth mentioning there. Are they the ones who like grab Bruce while he's possessed <laughs> by the blood and like keep it together, man? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly who they are. It's a, so it's such funny. a great scene. Such a great scene. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to announce our bracket of sixteen for the best Disney villains, sidekick, minions, whatever you want to call them. And let's cue up the dramatic music. And away we go. They're her little poopsies coming in at the number one seed. It's Floatsome and Jetsome from The Little Mermaid. Flying into the number two spot, we've got Iago from Aladdin. Mufasa, I said Kepasa, coming in at the number three seed is Shenzi, Bonze, and Ed. The number four seed is, uh, a little on the, uh, Warm side. From the Emperor's New Groove, it's Kronk. Bumbling their way from the greatest Disney movie that has ever been created, it's number oh. five, Jasper and Horace from 101 Dalmatians. Can they trick their way to the finals? Coming in at number six from The Nightmare Before Christmas, it's Lock, Shock, and Barrel. Could be considered the greatest spy in the Disney catalog. Coming in at the number seven seed from Sleeping Beauty, it's Diablo. What are those? Coming in at number eight, it's Pain and Panic. My man sure knows how to choreograph a number. Coming in at the number nine seed from Beauty and the Beast, it's LeFou. These two might rip their way through this bracket. Coming in at number 10 from Cinderella, Anastasia and Drizella. Henchmen, water skis, they're one in the same. Coming in at number 11, from the Rescuers, it's Brutus and Nero. He's certainly a doll. Coming in at number 12 from Toy Story 3, Big Baby. If there's one thing this guy can do right, it's row faster than anyone's ever rowed before. Coming in at the number 13 seed from Peter Pan, it's Mr. Shmee. Coming in at number 14 from Up, Alpha, Beta, and Gamma. You better watch out, because Kaz got a new outfit. Coming in at the number 15 seed, it is Sir Hiss from Robin Hood. Let's hope we got their noses right. Coming in at number 16 from Tangled, the Stabbington Brothers. Okay, Kyle, we've got our 16. This field is surprisingly stacked. Yeah, there's a lot that could go on here. I think that it's interesting because people were able to think up some very obscure characters like Brutus and Nero, but when you revisit, they did they were great henchmen at the at the end of the day. But then you also have some of the hard hitters like Iago and the hyenas from Lion King. So there's a there's a great array here. Kara, when you see this bracket, what's the first thing that really comes to mind to you? Um, ones that stood out to me were definitely the stepsisters from Cinderella. That was my favorite movie growing up. I dressed up as Cinderella for Halloween multiple times. Um, and Kronk. I think Kronk is a standout henchman. He went all out for Yzma. Love Kronk. Cannot wait to talk about Kronk because everyone loves Emperor's New Groove. Am I right? But before we get there, we got to talk about our first matchup. It's the number one seed, Flotsam and Jetsam versus number, versus number 16, the Stabbington Brothers. All right. You want, you want first? You want to give it to me? You want me to hop in? All right. 
So let's get into it. So Flotsam and Jessam took the number one spot here. I don't know that they deserve it if you dig under the surface and really look at what they do in the movie, but they've got that name appeal for sure, 100%. They also have a really great character design, something we talked about a lot in the villains bracket, which was our second bracket we did on this show. The design of the villain is really important because having your villain be intimidating looking and scary instills that fear in the audience. So Flotsam and Jetsam definitely check that box. They're eels, which are kind of like the snakes of the ocean. <laughs> uh, little water snakes, little water snakes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start us off with some fun facts right away. Why don't we do that? All right, let's, so, ho- let's hop in, Chris. If you don't know, if you're not nautical in your knowledge, Flotsam <laughs> and Jetsam are types of debris that are floating in the ocean. Different types of fish like to make their homes in Flotsam and Jetsam. So it's most commonly like a box or a crate or like a piece of plastic floating in the water. Not great. But Flotsam is debris that's not deliberately thrown overboard. So it just maybe falls out of a boat. And Jetsam is debris that's deliberately thrown overboard. So maybe (laughs) the ship is in distress or it's sinking or they're trying to for some reason, shed the weight of the vessel. They jettison stuff into the water, hence jetsam. All right. Interesting. Here's another one. So under (laughs) maritime law, flotsam can be reclaimed by the original owner, but jetsam is like anyone's property. Anyone that can find it is yours now. So how is that relevant to these two characters? Not at all. (laughs) But it's fun information for our viewers out there. So Flotsam and Jetsam act as kind of the eyes and ears of Ursula. They're first seen as Ariel swimming away from the surface to go to her concert. And the their vision transitions to like Ursula's little magic ball. So pretty much wherever they are, Ursula is super important to Ursula's plot because she doesn't like to go anywhere. Ursula loves staying in her little cave. So very important for her. I guess one thing I probably don't like about Flotsam and Jetsam is that they're a little bit over the top in the way that they talk. Kyle, when we were doing our best Disney animated movies bracket, you were like, I don't like Little Mermaid. Don't like it. Not that good. Super overrated. And I was like, you're wrong. And watching Flotsam and Jetsam specifically in this movie, I kind of started to come around a little bit to the idea that this movie is not that good because, <laughs> man, it's it's hammy. Like, whenever yeah. they talk, it's like, yeah. like uh, during Poor Unfortunate Soul, Ursula leans in at one point is like pathetic and then they go mm, yes and it's like ah oh, man it's a little bit too hammy for me okay um but if we're talking about their relationship with Ursula they also come up with a really big play during kiss the girl Ariel's about to kiss Eric which you know makes her human forever so she's still alive and Ursula's whole plot is to capture her soul so she can get Triton's soul right Flossie and Jetsam flipped the boat. Like, huge game time that was a That's a huge play, man. That's a huge play. Uh, she also has a lot of respect for these two, which is something that's kind of uncommon with a lot of these minions is like they're idiots. And mm-hmm. you're like, why does this villain even employ these fools? But 
Flotsam and Jetsam, there seems to be kind of a mutual respect between Ursula and them, so like that a lot. Uh, the Stabbington Brothers. My one little fun fact for the Stabbington Brothers, the kingdom from Tangled is called Corona. Uh-oh. Topical. I always thought it was called Kingdom of the Sun for some reason, but yeah, <laughs> it's called Corona. Interesting. I, I, I think the Stabbington Brothers are a little underrated, honestly. Um, they're not featured a whole lot in Tangled, but they are interesting in that they kind of live by their own rules. And there's a few characters like that in this bracket, but they are not tied to the main villain super tight. Right. And they are motivated by money, which gives them really clear motivation and kind of room for, you know, doing things, doing things by their own book, you know, looking out for their own interests instead of the villain's interest. If we're talking about more enjoyable characters to watch, which is probably what I'm going to be going for, for a lot of these matchups, I'm going Stabbington Brothers. Just because it's also interesting that they have a backstory with Flynn Rider. He screws them over and takes the little satchel that has the crown in it from them and leaves them to be arrested. And it gives them a little bit of a motivation. So whenever they're on screen, the tension is a little bit higher than when uh, Flotsam and Jetsam are on screen. Because it's basically just one of Ursula's hands. Also, like how Stabbington Brothers kind of pit the love interests against each other when they knock Flynn out and put him on the boat. They make Rapunzel think that he just like bailed on them. Super great psychological manipulation. So while the Stabbington Brothers probably aren't as memorable, I got the upset here, man. I'm going Stabbington Brothers over Flotsam and Jetsam. I don't think that I'm necessarily going to go with like who is most enjoyable on screen in this one. Because I think that a big part of being like a good henchman, a good minion, the the best minion, is a lot of it is like loyalty to the villain to me. Like if you're a good minion, if you're a good uh, henchman, if you're a good sidekick, you're loyal to whoever you're second in command to. And in this matchup, it's Flotsam and Jetsam to me. I think that the Stabbington brothers, you're right, are really underrated characters, but they they are only motivated by money and they're not dedicated to a villain. But they're still they're still sidekicks, still henchmen, but they're just not the strongest ones, I don't think, here. I think that like the way Flotsam and Jetsam made that game time decision to tip the boat so that the kiss couldn't happen is key. Like they can operate for towards one goal together and the Stabbington brothers do it too but they're so flip-flopped that they their allegiances aren't towards Gothel they're towards the outcome which is benefiting them which in that case they would then split off I don't think that they would remain Gothel's like sidekicks at all um I I agree with you that a big part of being a villain and even being a sidekick is intimidation and I've the the Stabbington brothers are just big scary dudes, but like eels are creepy, man. They are terrifying <laughs> creatures. I do not like them, and I they're think dead in probably, the eyes. This is the scary. They're dead. Part. They're dead in the eyes, and I think that it was this movie that really just made me like infinitely 
afraid of eels for the rest of my life because I still think they're creepy and I see them at the aquarium and I get shivers. Like I don't need eels in my they life. They don't blink. How do they not blink? That's, that's what I'm saying. So like them being eels already puts them up ahead for me just because that's just so terrifying. And they're these like magical eels, right? They they have the power to like to serve as a crystal ball when they put those glowing eyes together. And that's key. Like they're they're a tool for the villain as well that helps them achieve one singular goal. In this case, it was to capture Ariel's voice and eventually, hopefully, um, come out on top in the end. But the villains never come on out on top in these movies. So, uh, Chris, I just think that the more loyal and the better henchmen and minions here are Flotsam and Jetsam, and they're scarier to me, and they're, they're just better disney henchman villains so i'm going flotsam and jetsam which means we are throwing it directly to kara in the very first matchup to break this tie okay this one is a little tough because i do know these both of these movies very well um i do have to lean towards kyle's argument in the sense that the stabbington brothers were very self-serving um it seemed like their outcome was solely for their benefit whereas flotsam and jetsam were undyingly loyal to Ursula and for that reason I'm going to agree with Kyle also Flotsam and Jetsam are so scary they're creepy I remember their creepy yellow eyes they're like little fangs um I think they're definitely the the better group of henchmen teamwork makes the dream work baby all right we have the number one seed moving on to the next round we're going to head down the bracket it is number eight pain and panic versus number nine LeFou Pain and Panic are the super funny duo, uh, the sidekicks to Hades and the movie Hercules. Um, it, the, their characters are so smart. This idea of pain and panic being personified as these little demon goblins who are also like shapeshifters, right? It's, I just think it's so good. They're so funny. Um, the the oh my god, <laughs> you don't think they're funny? I think they're cringe they're cringe oh i don't think they're cringe i think they're i think they're hilarious um pain uh he's the more cunning one but he's he doesn't really think things through very well while panic is a little bit more cautious because when one is afraid of things and and panicking they might be a little bit more cautious and he's smarter and he's it really balances out the the relationship between the two of them they do have a lot of hard time getting things right throughout this movie um, That's they can't, statement. They can't kill Hercules in the beginning. They're not super loyal to Hades once Hercules turns into the celebrity. They buy all of <laughs> Hercules' merch and are, like, super fans of Herc. So, like, they're not super loyal to Hades. They're more operating under fear, which is another theme that you see throughout all of these um, henchmen is a lot of them are operating under fear of the villain they're serving, essentially. Um I think that they're great spies due to their shape-shifting abilities. Like, they're able to become the little kids that are trapped under those rocks and, and, and waiting for the Hydra to come to battle Hercules, which doesn't work out, right? Um, not sure if that's that's not necessarily their fault. They executed the plan as, as told, but the they underestimated Hercules' power and his strength there. All right, and then we move on to number nine, LeFou, who is essentially the OG hype man. He is so gassed. He is, he is Gaston's so hype. hype man. Name me another hype man that wrote their villains a song t- just to hype them up, right? You don't. You don't see it. 
LeFou is by Gaston's side. And while he's a little bit more wary of, like, Gaston's, like, decisions and and he's not always with it, he's always willing to execute for Gaston, which I really like. Um, he is awful at spying and disguising, which is opposite of Pain and Panic, when he disguises himself as the snowman when he gets thrown into the snow as Bell's passing by. And it's just a really bad snowman. Like, it's such a LeFou thing because he's kind of like another theme that we're going to see a lot he's kind of a a little bit of a bumbling idiot when it comes to being a sidekick and just a character in general um he he despite him wanting to be good like i said he's always by gaston's side and he's willing to help gaston become successful whether that's uh, hyping him up in a song whether that's being right by his side when they go to kill the beast whether that's battling all of these like mystical uh furniture pieces right like he's he's in it to win it with gaston and i think that's that's what you want in a sidekick so chris here i have the upset i have number nine lefou moving over pain and panic just because as bumbling as lefou is pain and panic are just as bumbling and they still tend to mess everything up so i'm going with lefou kyle i'm glad you brought up the word idiotic because i developed a scale to value a lot of these minions i'm calling it the six i scale and it's basically a sliding scale to kind of show you where the minion is at in terms of their effectiveness and the plot (laughs) okay we've got imbecile which is like the lowest of the low Mm -hmm. then you've got idiotic you've got incompetent you've got ineffective and that's kind of where it peaks. And then you've got instrumental and independent. Yep. So those are your six eyes. So when I'm looking at all of these minions, I'm looking for someone who kind of falls in that instrumental realm. Right. Okay. But then there's diminishing marginal returns where you've got like the Stabbington brothers where they become independent so that they, they kind of stop being valuable to the villain because they've got their own agenda. Right. right. If you want to use that. I do. And... Pain and Panic, to me, are the lowest of the low. They are imbeciles. They can get nothing right. They're constantly falling over themselves. Hades is constantly losing his temper at them. It gets so annoying to me. And it's one of the reasons I don't like Hercules is because Pain and Panic, they have no character. They serve as just like a plot device where they're getting in the way of Hades' plan. And it's just like nauseating watching them continually just like butcher these things so hercules is still just like you know sitting pretty the whole time so really do not like pain and panic i agree that lafu's not great either but he does come up with one really big play he coerces maurice when the whole town square is there to like see him get hauled away to the asylum he like talks to him and gets him to start kind of like given some of those weird details like the beast was seven feet tall no 10 feet tall you know so yeah lefou is very valuable in that moment also gaston does most of the heavy lifting there hades for some reason lets pain and panic do all of the heavy lifting which is like yeah so dumb a lot of these villains kind of make stupid plays in that realm where it's like you sh- you got to be doing this yourself man killing hercules like that <laughs> seems like something you should do like do yeah. not let your screwball sidekicks handle that and so lefou never really gets 
a big moment to mess things up. So it makes him a little bit more of a safer pick here, but might come back to bite him because he doesn't have many big plays. So I also am going LeFou here. Kara, do you have anything to say about LeFou's victory in this round? I do. Um, Fun fact for the listeners, LeFou translated in French means the fool. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. All we need to know. That's literally all you need to know, especially as we move on in this in this bracket here. Speaking of fools, next matchup, we've got the number four seed Kronk versus number 13, Mr. Smee. Both of these dudes just have uh, no idea what they're doing. <laughs> none whatsoever. None whatsoever. But I guess I guess I'll start with Kronk. I mean, Kronk is one of the most beloved Disney characters of all time. Yeah. I think we can all agree that. This is a guy who is on the villain's team at the villain's hip, constantly being a yes man, doing whatever the villain asks him to do. But we still love him, even though he's on like the wrong side. It's so interesting. He's just funny in the right ways. He's got a really strong character. He's developed so well. We know so much about Kronk, guys. We he, do. He has spinoffs. He's, he's a great cook. He <laughs> sleeps with a teddy bear who wears a matching hat. He's a great jump roper. He has weak angles. He wrestled in high school. He took interpretive <laughs> dance from Miss Narca for two semesters. <sighs> he has some experience in metalworking. Like, we spend so much time with Kronk and get such a good sense of his character. It's great. I love it. He and studied squirrel. He studied, he studied he's, sp- he's like a squirrel scout guy. He's great. Oh, my gosh. I just love Kronk. Yeah. Can't go wrong with him. Can't go wrong with the voice work. Anytime Patrick Warburton is in anything, you get, you have my money. You have my money. Great voice, great character. Kronk gets these moments where he has like the devil and the angel on either side <laughs> of his shoulders, and they're really funny. But yeah. I think that they do such a good job, like letting Kronk express his like inner turmoil where he's trying to decide whether to be loyal to Yzma or just like do the right thing it's interesting it's supposed to be like a a comedy beat but you get some like character arcing going on in that moment and it just it just works so well I mean like I have a smile on my face just talking about this guy (laughs) okay Mr. Smee I thought Mr. Smee was the first mate to Captain Hook it's even on like the Disney wiki stuff that he's the first mate, but he's not the first mate. In the movie, he specifically says, oh, I heard the first mate tell the cook that blah, 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 blah. Right. So clearly he's just like a guy. He's just like mm-hmm. Captain Hook's pet guy. No one on Captain Hook's pirate crew respects Captain Hook. Mr. Smee is the only one. So I have, a little, I have a little issue with something Ollie Johnson said, who is one of the greatest Disney animators in history. He said that Mr. Smee was one of his favorite characters ever to animate. He said that he wasn't just the villain's lackey, but a fully realized personality of his own in the story, which is something I actually completely disagree with. Mr. Smee doesn't really have a personality. He just is a guy who messes a lot of stuff up. And a lot like Pain and Panic, it becomes just annoying. And we docked captain hook a lot of points for this in the villains bracket he's just captain hook's just like a boob and he's just getting like constantly beat up the whole movie and 90 percent of that is because mr smee doesn't know what he's doing mr smee's not an interesting character he's not funny he is ineffective in helping captain hook execute his plots 
You can see that when Peter Pan is like throwing his voice and tricking him into like rowing Tiger Lily out and back and out and back and freeing her. And uh, it's just Peter Pan's not a great movie. I'll say it right now. Mr. Smee, not a great minion. It's all it's just all bad. So easy cronk win for me here. I think that I disagree with you that Mr. Smee doesn't have a personality because I think he does. He's he's like a, a small anxious man who who just wants to do right by Captain Hook and like please Captain Hook. And I think that like his personality is that of an anxious person who likes to please others. Like I think that he, he in the in this era of Disney animation, he was definitely one of the more developed characters, I think, personality wise, um, being that this was such an early Disney movie. But um, in this matchup, I think that I agree with you because Mr. Smee, like he in in your scale of like idioticness, he's definitely like just completely incompetent. He's like he's just a bumbling fool who like is trying to do good, but like he constantly just messes things up because he just doesn't get it. And like it's shown over and over again. He does come through and like captures the lost boys and captures tinkerbell but i think that cronks like <laughs> i think that just like cronk doesn't he you see him battling like whether or not he should be loyal to yzma but he's just like so deeply an idiot that like he he's this is his sole purpose like this is his job he sees like being yzma's like sidekick as his job and he just wants to do his job the best that he can and he's actually like on board with all of this stuff, like trying to kill Kuzco when he's like switch when he's trying to make the <laughs> mixed drinks and to poison him. Like he's on board with all of this stuff. Like he shows his loyalty to Yzma. He shows that he's willing to help her get what she needs. It's nothing's really benefiting him, right? It's all benefiting Yzma, and he's willing to help out to make that happen. And he, while he still gets in the way of a lot of stuff and he misses so many clues that go by him like when he's the chef in the restaurant and like he's not turning around to see who's talking to him like putting in orders like it like it's off like everyone in that universe is an idiot right because like the <laughs> Jeez, llama is right right they're all idiots they don't recognize that this llama is dressed up as a human they think this is a human and he it's so obviously a llama so like we can't fault him for being an idiot if everyone else is but like there's so many chances for him to like make the right move but in this matchup it's definitely crunk and i use his line a lot when he's like uh when yzma asks him if he sh if he can feel the power of of the of the potion he's like oh <laughs> i can feel it oh, i love oh, that man. literally everything <laughs> that comes out of Kronk's mouth is quote worthy yeah, literally everything so, everything so chris i'm with you here we're moving Kronk on kara are you a big Kronk fan i am a huge Kronk fan although i have to say i do have love for mr smee because in my sixth grade production of captain hook i portrayed him no way <laughs> no way I started laughing when you guys brought up his name. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I have a lot of love for that character because, you know, for a couple months, I was really all in on Mr. Smee. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Kronk is just the obvious choice. He, I think he's one of the funniest characters in Disney movies, period. That might be a bold statement. But when I think of movies 
Disney movies that I've laughed out loud at both as a kid and as an adult, my mind immediately goes to him. Here's something that no one's really mentioned about Kronk. The dude is jacked. <laughs> yes, jacked is, with weak angles. Kronk is up there with Triton, Hercules, Tarzan, best physiques in Disney. Kronk, no one, this dude, even he even says his suit size in the movie. He says right. 66 long and a 31 waist. <laughs> this guy is like... Mr. Olympia bodybuilder status. This guy is impressive. So little bonus points for Kronk there. All right, let's move on down to the next matchup. It is number five, Jasper and Horace from 101 Dalmatians, the best Disney animated movie that has ever been created. First number 12, Big Baby. Number 12, Big Baby from Toy Story 3. Chris, this was such a pleasant surprise to see Big Baby make this uh, henchman list because he's a character that... I just never really think about or she um this this character is what you think of when you think of like the stereotypical like henchman minion of a bad guy the muscle right the villain is the brains and the and the the villain's minion is the bronze like big baby is that to a t big baby is foiling buzz's plans to spy on the the evil meeting and grabs him he's or she's the one that throws people into the sandbox which is like the the prison hole for toys and like is the guard and all this stuff right jasper and horace are are kind of like stabbington brothers they're but just way more bubble like bumbling idiots about it they're kind of four higher crooks that are helping Cruella get what she wants because Cruella's gonna pay her and I think this is where like Jasper and Horace fall in this like sidekick evil sidekick debate because they're like just they're freelance artists Cruella went on went on London Craigslist and just found these guys and was like (laughs) yo like I need some help uh capturing some puppies and I'll pay you handsomely they're like all right let's do it um what makes Jasper and Horace such great like evil characters is is the part when they have first of all they're not incompetent because they captured a hundred and one puppies like think about the pure volume and overhead of moving a hundred and one puppies and without anyone knowing where all 101 puppies have ended up right it's impressive and it's not and like people think that oh 101 dalmatians pongo and perdita had 101 puppies it's this like disney thing no they adopted the 101 puppies once they were rescued. So Jasper and Horace were just collect- rounding these Dalmatians up from all around London. Just round them up. And that's super impressive that they're able to do that. And they're so, like, dedicated to the job. I don't think to Cruella because there's many times in the movie where they're, like, bad-mouthing Cruella and they're kind of second-guessing her motives. But uh, there's a part where they talk about, like, she wants the job done. She wants these puppies killed in skin to make a jacket or a coat which is like terrifying like i don't know that i brought this up enough in the villains bracket how like (laughs) diabolical that is for corella to do oh yeah but but like jasper and horace there's a part in in the movie where they talk about like who's gonna kill the puppy and who's gonna skin the puppy they blatantly just talk about it which is like what that oh my gosh it's just so evil so like they're great evil people, 
great evil characters, but I don't know that they're great henchmen because their loyalties don't lie to Cruella. They want to get the job done and get paid. Um, while on the other hand, Big Baby, loyal to Lotso. Big Baby thinks that Lotso is like protecting him or her. Uh, Lotso has come up with this story that like Big Baby's owner, Daisy, has abandoned her um, or him and like Big Baby's locked in on that. Like Big Baby's like, Lotso is now my like he Lotso was there for me when I was abandoned like and, and Big Baby doesn't speak but this is all through like this uh this emotional <laughs> backstory that we get yeah from Lotso and then also like who would have thought that we would have such character depth from a character that doesn't talk that's portraying a plastic baby only Pixar man only it's Pixar unbelievable you know what it is Chris it's iconic Pixar oh my um and so Big Baby like. The, there's a scene in Toy Story 3 where Big Baby is kind of self-reflecting and sitting on the swing and looking at the moon. <laughs> what? I, 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 need this, I, I need this scene, like that wide shot of the baby sitting on the swing. I need that as a poster. <laughs> that's like a, that's cinematic mwah, chef kiss. Just, it's such a, like, a great, like, humanizing thing. Like, you see this baby kind of like, this toy baby sitting and self-reflecting who ah iconic fixar um i think here like until the very end when the truth is revealed and lotso has been playing big baby the entire time had lotso not been foiled big baby would still be loyal to lotso and that's super important to me in this minions thing is loyalty to the villain and i think that jasper and horace while they're great crooks they're not great minions i mean they're great minions in that they get the job done for their boss but there's no loyalty between them and the boss big baby there totally is willing to do anything for lots so i'm moving number 12 big baby on in this bracket i would just like to get on record kyle voted against a 101 dalmatians thing before i even said a word yep so. i uh I want to make, yeah, so Chris, I took the heat off of you this time because I knew if I let you go first in this matchup, the hate mail would continue to roll in, so you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for taking the heat for that one. A hundred percent agree. Lotso is betrayed by Big Baby at the end of Toy Story 3, but like you said, it's totally understandable. It's not like Big Baby has its own agenda. A big thing when it comes to these minion villains relationship is a mutual respect for each other. And clearly, Lotso lost the respect of Big Baby. So, like, if a villain's going to get betrayed by the minion, that's the situation where it's going to happen. Yeah. Love, love that they explore the backstory between these two as well. So many of these minions, they're just like, they're just with the villain. And it's like, yeah, they just kind of picked him up along the way sometime. But, like, they go back and show the moment when Lotso became linked with Big Baby Forever. Right. Love seeing that. <clears throat> I wish Josh was here to talk about this because <laughs> Big Baby gets the Darth Vader arc. Yes. Literally, it's almost shot for shot when Big Baby notices that Lotso has like abused his power and he lifts him up over his head <laughs> and throws him in the dumpster. Like the exact same way Vader kills Palpatine in Turn of the Jedi. So oh, good. So good. <laughs> Jasper and Horace end up ruining Cruella's plan at the end of 101 Dalmatians by crashing into her car. They screw that up. I -hmm. like that at the beginning of the movie, they are established as very competent minions in that they execute the original kidnapping of the puppies extremely well. Very efficient. 
very, very expertly done. Like they're they're clearly veteran criminals, right? And they even talk mm-hmm. about that. They're like, if we get pinched one more time, right? And then the wheels just come off the car. Like they just crash and burn when they're at the mansion and they lose 101 puppies. They just all just walk <laughs> out the door. I guess if there was only one thing good I'd say about Horace and Jasper is that they have distinct personalities. And we'll talk mm-hmm. about this more in the other side of the bracket. But when you have teams of minions or like partner minions, when it comes to Flotsam and Jetsam, they have similar personalities. But I like when there's a little bit of a variance in the minion personalities. And Jasper and Horace display that. Jasper is kind of the smart one. Horace is the one who thinks with his stomach. And there's that moment when Rolly kind of like connects with him almost where he yeah. goes for the sandwich. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like a, a uh-huh. hero relating to a minion in a way. I, I like that. But I agree with you. Big Baby is so underrated and so memorable. I'm going Big Baby here with the upset as well. Kara, what do you know about Big Baby? What don't I know about Big Baby? <laughs> I used to have numerous vivid nightmares about this this doll. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he's terrifying. literally would freak me out so much. I used to have to like run up to my parents' room and crawl under their covers and like cry. So I think that makes him the obvious choice. Yeah, absolutely. If he's he's a villain's henchman, clearly he's he's doing his job. I was very scared. (laughs) All right, let's hop over to the other side of the bracket. We've got number two, Iago, versus number 15, Sir Hiss from Robin Hood. This one's interesting because I saw Iago at the number two seed and I was like, overrated. Overrated. Everything about Aladdin is overrated. I talk a lot about how Lion King's overrated. Aladdin, so much more overrated than Lion King. But I went back and I watched Aladdin looking specifically at Iago, just watching Iago the entire time. And boy, I have a whole new appreciation for this character. Such a great concept, great casting. Let's get into some fun facts first. Iago is a scarlet macaw, which is a type of parrot that is native to South and Central America. Now, as we know, Aladdin takes place in Agrabah, which is somewhere in the Middle East. So parrots like Iago, not native to this area. So at first I was like, that doesn't make sense. They totally screwed that up. But the more you think about it, it's like maybe Jafar like bought Iago in like a sketchy marketplace somewhere or something. And I'm kind of into that theory. He also speaks, so. Right. So, you know, could be like some strange hooded figure sold Iago to Jafar, which, yeah, that makes more sense, honestly, than like Aladdin creators messed that up. But I don't know. Uh, Iago, loudmouthed parrot voiced by Gilbert Godfrey, who is a Brooklyn, New York native. So when you see a parrot, you automatically think like just someone who mimics the speaker. And it's almost like your expectations are subverted a little bit where it's this really talkative, loud-mouthed, obnoxious animal. And I just love that role reversal there. Him and Jafar kind of make an odd couple in that Jafar is very like calculated and he's kind of a man of few words. He's a little bit soft-spoken, but in an evil way. And Iago is just like, he, he has a comment about everything. Olaf 
comedy beats do not work for me, as I've stated many times before on this podcast. The Olaf but effect. comedy beats. The Olaf effect does not apply to Iago. I don't know. We've got an Iago effect here. For some reason, I I just think it's hilarious. The reason is, I think Iago kind of represents this real world reality. Sorry. I think Iago represents like a real world perspective in this fantasy world. And it's almost like Iago is the person that the audience is supposed to relate to. Kind of a far-fetched theory, but that was how I was feeling last time I watched Aladdin. Iago is surprisingly major key to Jafar's plot. Iago is the one that suggests that Jafar try to marry Jasmine himself. Iago also the one who swipes the lamp from Aladdin, actually utilizing his parrot abilities, mimicking Jasmine's voice to get Aladdin to walk away from the lamp. Super clutch. And kind of like the big thing for me is that when Jafar turns into a genie and gets sucked into his lamp, Iago's like, yo, I'm out. I'm tipping. <laughs> yeah, he's like. And Jafar, and Jafar grabs him as he's going back into the lamp. And to me, that implies that Jafar really needs Iago. Right. And uh, that's a very strong case for me for Iago being a good minion. Sir Hiss, um, a minion our viewers might not be super familiar with. He is Prince John's yes man. He is constantly just like, yes, Prince John, you the man, you the king. LeFou is really hype, but Sir Hiss probably is like the second best hype man on this bracket. Prince John puts on his brother King Richard's crown and Sir Hiss is like, it suits you. It fits you perfectly. And it's like drooping down his head. Uh-huh. Like clearly doesn't fit him. And Sir Hiss is like, oh, bro, it looks legit, bro. <laughs> uh, he's got the power of hypnotism, which never really comes into play at a key moment in Robin Hood. As you alluded to when we were announcing the participants in this bracket, Ka has that ability as well. Yep. But it's kind of a dead end in Robin Hood. Sir Hiss acts as a punching bag to Prince John, a.k.a. PJ. (laughs) It makes him a good minion, I guess, like taking that abuse. But, you know, I like a minion who has a little bit of agency, who displays a little bit of intelligence, who makes the villain better as opposed to just like, you know, especially a villain like Prince John, who clearly has his shortcomings and has ways that a minion could make up those shortcomings so his just like i don't know he's just like he's literally a punching bag for prince john so i don't love sir his really the only thing that's redeeming about him is he makes this really funny balloon contraption mm-hmm. to get him around the tournament grounds <laughs> it's extremely silly but yeah i got iago here pretty easily i don't think that sir his is a yes man at all I think that he's actually like continually fed up with Prince John and his like wussiness and his inability to see through like Robin Hood's plants. There's the very first scene when uh, Robin Hood and Lil John dress up as Lil John. Oh no, what's his name? Yeah, Lil John. <laughs> I just like when you call him Lil John. <laughs> what? When they dress up as fortune tellers, and uh, Sir Hiss is like, "Yo." They're not fortune tellers like that's they're going to rob us. And 
Prince John's like, nah, like I'm trying to get my fortune read. And then it happens. And Sir Hiss like starts lecturing Prince John about it. And he's like, dude, I, I told you they were fortune tellers. This is why you need to listen. Or they weren't fortune tellers. You need to listen to me. I get it. And then uh, Prince John hits him over the head with a mirror. And he's like, and now you just gave us seven years of bad luck. And that mirror belonged to your mother. Like, I don't think Sir Hiss is a yes man at all. I think like he's a minion to Prince John. And he's just as much as wanting power as Prince John does. But I don't think that he's as much as a punching bag as maybe you think he might be. I think he does have his own agency. And he, I mean, he's the one that like goes after Robin Hood every time that something happens in the fortune teller scene. He's the one that like actively tries to stop them. Um, he, he puts together that balloon contraption to spy on and try and spot Robin Hood and does, right? Like he's a pretty competent minion and he's pretty great at what he does. Um, on the other side, we have Iago who like, <laughs> uh, Chris, I like, I don't know what you saw in Iago cause I did not like him at all wow. when i watched it i guess it's the new yorker in me <laughs> it must be it must be i just i mean like i was like that is me in parrot form <laughs> i appreciated like his character right i appreciated uh gilbert godfrey's voice as the parrot like that's a perfect match and that's like the role he was born to play um he does come up with the scheme for your uh for jafar to marry jasmine so he does have agency and he does want to accomplish this goal but he's even more so of like a like he's just as much of a punching bag as sir his is it feels like like he <laughs> jafar is this like sorcerer right he has these like powers that he can he can disguise himself he can use his staff to like hypnotize people and yet to power his like crystal bar ball magic mirror he needs this parrot to run and spin a wheel i was just like can't you just like use some sort of like sorcerer magic and just like make this happen why is the parrot having to like run to make this thing work but it, i mean it, i guess it like shows that iago is like loyal to jafar and willing to help him and do whatever it takes blah 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 even like serving as a um a parrot in the traditional sense when he's just like repeating everything that people say at the very beginning until you find out that he can like actually talk um, super funny mislead by the way yeah no that was great great reveal there um but i i just don't i think like i mean he's like fine to me but i think that like the agency that sir hiss has and like his ability to like jab back at prince john and like iago gets super frustrated with jafar like that's very obvious but like i <sighs> Honestly, like this one is a super toss up for me, but I just like I did not enjoy Iago. And the, I think they both have the same level of loyalty to their villain, except for Iago tries to dip at the end. <laughs> and Jafar's like, nah, man, you coming with me. Um, <laughs> so there, there's a little bit of slip of loyalty there, but he knew he knew what was in the cards for him. So this is a toss up. Chris, I'm going Sir Hiss only because I enjoyed him a lot more. And I think he was just a little bit better of a minion than Iago was. Kara, you're breaking this tie. I kind of already knew my answer when I first heard this bracket. I don't know. I, I just have always thought of Iago as such a prominent sidekick. And I think that he is very cunning. And I think that he always, like, he does whatever Jafar wants him to. I don't know. I, I, I think I have to go with Chris on this one. 
I think let's go. Let's go. Iago is the he's. I just think he's the better sidekick. He's the more iconic sidekick. Like when I think of, I don't think of Robin Hood. When I think of classic sidekicks, I think of Jafar and I think of the little parrot that's like literally always on his shoulder. Yo, my six eye skill just became the seven eye skill. So uh, let's add iconic to those I words, please. To to argue, like, what is a parrot other than someone who literally mimics you and wants to do whatever, wants to go along with whatever you want to go along with? That's, it's a good good concept. That's Great a concept. very good point. That's a he very good point. He will repeat what he says. He'll do what he says. All right. I'm not super upset at it. That's very that's very valid. I'm a little upset, but I'm not super upset. Let's move. Let's move down the bracket. We have number seven, Diablo from Sleeping Beauty versus number 10, Anastasia and Drizella from Cinderella. Chris, Diablo is moving on here because Anastasia and Drizella are not minions. They're just like bad people, but they're not actively helping Lady Tremaine at all. Lady, Tre- Lady Tremaine's like constantly tricking them into like doing what she wants, but they're not like acting with any agency. They're loyal to their mother for sure. It's their mother. But, like, they they don't put into a plan in action to, like, make sure Cinderella doesn't go to the ball. Like, they just didn't like their things. The mice came and swooped them up and made Cinderella a dress. And then Lady Tremaine's like, hey, wait a minute. I think I've seen that necklace before. And one of the sisters is like, oh, that's my necklace. Rips it up. Oh, and that's my stash or whatever. Rips that up. Right? Right? Like, they're not actively planning to bring down Cinderella and, like, I mean, they're actively bringing down Cinderella, but it's not of any gain to Lady Tremaine. Like, they're actively, like, giving her things to do because they're bullies, but they're they're not the traditional, like, minion. I don't see them as minion at all. I think that they're just, like, idiot daughters of an evil woman, and the evil woman is just manipulating them in ways that they're not even aware of. And I think you need to be aware that you're a minion in order to qualify as one. So I'm not... I'm not even qualifying them here. Diablo's moving on, and I'm going to save it for the next round for me. That's really interesting to me that you say that, because I agree in a lot of ways. Anastasia and Drizella are positioned differently than most of the other minions are in this bracket. Traditionally, it's very black and white in Disney movies. There's a good guy. There's a bad guy. The good guy has a goal. The bad guy's goal is to ruin the good guy's goal. In Cinderella... Anastasia and Drizella and Cinderella both have the same goal. And they don't, like you said, intentionally try to interfere with her. Their interference is very just character driven. They don't sit around and be like, okay, let's mess up Cinderella's plan here, guys. They just do it just because they're terrible people. And as I was thinking about these two, I was like, are these two the best minions? Because like they are so close to Cinderella. They live in the same home as her. They sleep in the same building as her. Like she has literally no escape from them. Or are they, like you said, not really minions, just people that are in Cinderella's way and are Anastasia and Drizella just a credit to how good of a villain Lady Tremaine is because this setup goes back decades right yeah this is all a master plot of Lady Tremaine she has 
groomed and conditioned her daughters right. to be anti-Cinderella, to be self-centered, blah, 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 blah. When I saw this bracket, I was like, Diablo is going to make a run. Diablo is kind of like how I was talking about Hayabusa in Mulan, very much a pet to Maleficent, mm-hmm. who doesn't really do a whole lot like on their own, but is so important in like the movement of the villain. Diablo does come up with a great play when Diablo notices the like magical sparkles coming out of the roof of the Briar Rose cabin. Huge play. Huge play. Also, Diablo assumes a very interesting role when Prince Philip is trying to escape from Maleficent's castle. Diablo is like commanding the goon army. Right. And like telling them to launch the arrows, telling them to drop the bubbling cauldrons. So there's the implication that Diablo is kind of like almost half human, half animal. And that's actually explored in the Maleficent live action movie. Really underrated live action movie, by the way. Uh. Uh. <laughs> we'll talk about it in our live action bracket one day. Um, yeah, like in the live action version, like Diab- Diablo is renamed Diavol or something, and like is like a human animal hybrid. But um, I don't know. I just think the scene where Anastasia and Drizella rip apart Cinderella's dress is like so devastating that I, I think I'm siding with them. Oh, they're like, not minions. I think they are minions. I think they definitely are. And they have no idea that they're minions. And that's the beauty of the character. They do Lady Tremaine's bidding without having to be commanded. Like they're they're programmed to do what she wants. <sighs> I think that makes them great. I think this, the idea of the evil stepsister is iconic. A tale is all this time. So I'm going with Anastasia and Drizella here, which means we're throwing it to Kara for the tiebreaker. Okay. Well, I heard both of your arguments. I saw validity in both of them. But I have to say my own personal definition of a minion is someone who can't think for themselves and is a literal plain bagel. Oh my gosh. Which, in my opinion, Ooh. maybe people like plain bagels. I don't like plain bagels because they're boring and they have no substance. And I see them as plain bagel minion girls because they do whatever their their mom tells them to do. Wow. But they don't know. Oh, yeah. All right. Well. No, no, no. What's your counter argument? That they don't know the end goal. Exactly, because they're not the villain. They're they're the they're the like devices being put to use. True, true. The definition of a minion is like you don't even know why you're doing it. You're just doing it because someone told you to. I don't know if I agree with that. That's two in a row, baby. So I have to go with the stepsisters and I I always had a vengeance against them. So sounds like the stepsisters move on. Next matchup, we've got Shenzi, Banzai, and Ed versus Alpha, Beta, and Gamma. We've got a couple four-legged trios going head-to-head here. Battle of the Pats. This one is a little bit interesting. Alpha, Beta, and Gamma, I'm not sure they should be grouped together because Alpha has a distinct personality. 
Right. Right. When put next to beta and gamma, beta and gamma are that stereotypical minion where they're kind of bumbling, they're kind of idiots, they're easily distracted, and alpha is very much in charge. The one thing I really don't like about alpha is the voice shifting thing they do with him. Yeah. We talked about it in the Pixar bracket. Up, pretty good movie. I think people remember <laughs> it as a better movie than it was. Like the the intro is great. Like the first like twenty minutes of Up, top tier yeah. Pixar entertainment. Yep. Falls off in the second half, and yep. Alpha, Beta, and Gamma as characters are a good example of that. You have this dog who is a Doberman, one of the most aggressive dog breeds in existence. He's got the pointy ears. He is also jacked supposed to be really scary and you give him this like comical like high-pitched voice and like yeah i get that's supposed to be a joke in itself but if we're talking about instilling fear in an audience not a great way to build tension shenzi bonsai and ed are not perfect either Ed is the derpy one who has like weird crazy <laughs> eyes and his tongue sticks out all the time and he doesn't really say anything. And for some reason when I think about these three, I just I just for some reason in my head think they're all Ed. Like they're all like doofuses. <laughs> no. <laughs> so just like Iago and Aladdin, I went through and I rewatched it just watching the hyenas, and they also do kind of have distinct personalities. The thing that I love about the hyenas is they're food motivated. Yes. They definitely fall more into the independent side of the 7i scale. Uh, You know, we see that in the end of the movie where they are complaining to Scar about how there's no food and they end up eating Scar at the end because they are hungry and Scar did a terrible job when he was in charge of the pride. The thing that I think puts the hyenas over the top is just that I think they're stronger characters. Hyenas stereotype everyone thinks about when they think about hyenas is they laugh. So they must have a great sense of humor. I went and did the research just like I did with lava. Hyenas do laugh. (laughs) Okay. It's not because they think things are funny, but they do laugh. And I like that they kind of like injected that into these uh, minions where they're a little bit silly, they're a little bit mischievous, they speak in like puns a lot of the time. It also makes them like maniacal. Yeah, exactly. It's like when you are going head to head with these hyenas, you have no idea what they can do. Right. Because they like, they get pleasure in bringing you down, which is interesting. Uh, they, they kind of profile a lot like the Joker in that way. So mm-hmm. while I think Lion King is an overrated movie, the hyenas are, in my opinion, pretty good minions. So I got them easily over Alpha, Beta, and Gamma. Yeah, I'm not going to waste any time. Hyenas are moving on for me. They're just great. We'll dive more into it next time. Coming up here, it's number six, Lock, Shock, and Barrel from The Nightmare Before Christmas versus number 11, Brutus and Nero. All right, these are a couple of like deep cuts, it feels like, because when you think of The Nightmare Before Christmas, I don't think that the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people are Lock, Shock, and Barrel. I mean, you got Jack, you have Sally, you even have the mayor, you have Oogie Boogie, you have Sally's like weird evil scientist dude. Um, I don't know that this is even like a first thought for me, Lock, Shock, and Barrel. Um, they're creepy little kids. 
They are um, really weird. Uh, they they're dressed for Halloween, living in Halloween Town, obviously. So they're they're the only like real characters, and maybe I'm completely wrong. That are just are like kids, and maybe they're like creepy kids, but they're also just wearing like costumes, right? So they're almost like more normal than the rest of Halloween Town, but they're super mischievous. Um, they're another like trio of minions that operate out of this like fear-based loyalty to Oogie Boogie. Like they're they kind of want to just be kids and and mischievous, but they're afraid of Oogie Boogie, so they're out here like doing things for him. They like slightly start like slipping into incompetence when they they capture the Easter Bunny instead okay, of Santa so Claus. Okay, so funny though, so funny. It is it is super funny. It's it's. Bunny. A great, <laughs> it's a great moment, but like they they were there for Santa Claus, and the Easter Bunny isn't Santa Claus. I mean, and obviously you don't, they don't know who Santa Claus is, but eh. um, and then on the other side, uh, you have Brutus and Nero, which is from The Rescuers, which is not a good movie. I'll say flat out, I don't think it's a good movie at all. Um, but. The thing about them is they're they're kind of like this. Um, they remind me a lot of like Big Baby, just without the like character depth of Big Baby. Like you can't really explore these crocodiles, right? Because they're crocodiles. But like they're the they're the muscle of the of Medusa's operation. They're constantly having to like capture and bring back Penny every time she escapes Medusa. Um, they they're kind of like the intimidation. I mean, Medusa's t- terrifying as it is, but like. Brutus and Nero are the muscle. Like, you don't want to mess with these crocodiles. Um, They, <laughs> in the final, like, chase scene, she, like, straight up just, like, <laughs> traps them to to her feet and uses them as these, like, water skis and just, like, jets across the, the bayou, I would assume, the swampland, and just, like, <laughs> it, it, they serve, like, they're instrumental at the same time, right? They're, like, the muscle, but then they're also instrumental, literally being used as, like, a mode of transportation which is like it's just a silly like disney thing um i think here though i'm way more terrified of lock shock and barrel because they're little creepy kids and i think that little creepy kids are a little bit more unpredictable um i mean crocodiles are unpredictable because they're animals but i think in like this sense like the the bidding that lock shock and barrel do to like they they are the ones that are enacting oogie boogie's plan right like oogie boogie's like yo you need to go get santa claus we need to bring him back they're the ones going out to do it and they end up doing it right brutus and nero are more just like pets they're like watchdogs i don't i don't know if we can consider them direct minions but they're i mean they're minions but they're i just think that lock shock and barrel here is the stronger minion group so i'm going number six moving on yeah the thing i probably like most about lock shock and barrel and I said this several times, love when plot is motivated by character. And like you said, Lock, Shock, and Barrel, mischievous trick-or-treaters, they're introduced in a very brief scene where they meet up with the mayor and Jack. And the mayor is, like, scared of them. Not, like, because they think they'll hurt him, but just because he's kind of, like, afraid they're going to pull something on him. So... I think their character is really well established. Maybe in later rounds we can get into that, like how loyal are they exactly? And are they afraid of Oogie or are they afraid of Jack? I think there's definitely some room to talk about that stuff, but 
I 100% agree. These characters are more enjoyable. They seem like they can do more damage to complicate the story. So uh, I'm also going with Lock, Shock, and Barrow. Well, Chris and Kara, that brings us to the end of our round of 16 and the end of this episode. Kara, what do you think about all of these outcomes so far? To be honest, I agree with a lot of them because you guys have made me be a tiebreaker quite a few times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've you've really shaped this bracket in a way that I, I was not expecting. There were a lot of upsets. I think there were a lot of upsets for Chris too, and that's just what makes this podcast so great. Just wait till you have to crown the winner of the whole dang thing, Kara. <laughs> yep, that seems to be a trend for us. All right, folks. Well, thank you for listening to part one of this bracket. You know where to find us. You can send us an email. If you've got a rebuttal, you want to say something about this, we are at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Play along on Twitter. We're always on there, Mouse Madness Pod. And of course, you can join our Discord server, our Facebook group, both linked in the description of this podcast. We cannot wait to keep this conversation going. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Kyle. We will see you all in the next episode. Little poopsies. Oh, 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 oh,